Remember this very clearly. The man with the microphone or the person with the microphone always wins. Okay? The person in the position of authority wins because they have what? They have the last word. They have the, the microphone. Um, if we're to challenge somebody above us, like our professor, perhaps not a professor at Southern, realize that a, we should never have a direct frontal assault on a superior force. If we're in a battle, we're not going to have a direct assault on a superior force. The professor always has a strategic advantage because they are the professor. Never get in a power play when you're outgunned. So let's, let's think about this. You're making a point. Um, for example, you're in class, some class, someplace. Uh, I'm sure it's not going to happen in Southern. You're in a class and a professor makes a statement about uh, all the myths in the Bible and the Bible not having any real value. Well, the thing a person could do is ask a question. What's our first clarifying, clarifying, clarifying question? What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that the Bible is all full of myths. You know, there's miracle stories here and there. It's full of myths. Then our follow-up question is, he's just made an assertion, right? The Bible's full of myths. What is his responsibility now? To prove it. So our next question would be, how did you come to that conclusion? And ask for his reasons. At that point, the professor might figure out what's going on and then say something like this. Well, you seem to be a Christian. Why don't you tell us your reasons for believing in the Bible? Don't take the bait. You have not made the statement. The professor has, or the person you're talking to, the, you know, the person up front. You don't take the bait. You could simply respond like this woman could have in this thing. She could have, if she still had the microphone, simply responded, well, you don't know if I'm a Christian at all. You're making all the assertions, Professor Dawkins. I just want to find out what happens if you're wrong. And so it's important for us to realize that if somebody else is making a case, they are the ones that are responsible for defending that case. Don't let them do a little um, linguistic jujitsu and get you in that position. Now, another thing that we should know how to do is getting out of the hot seat. Because sometimes we just don't have enough information to give a, a correct response. And this is one of the best places that you can use your uh, game plan. So when you know that you don't have enough information, switch from persuasion mode to fact-finding mode. Use the questions, what do you mean by that? What are your conclusions? And then ask them, well, what you're tell telling them, what you're telling me is something new, and I'm, I'm interested in what you're saying. Then say the magic words, can I go home and think about it and do some more, do some more studies? And when you do that, you, know, you take off the pressure off yourself. You're saying, well, I don't know this, so let me go, go learn more. So you go back and you study, you get more resources. Now, maybe you don't have enough time to do that or you see that the person is losing interest in talking to you. Don't try to force the conversation. Don't beat a dead horse because you need to let the conversation just die a natural death and maybe it didn't 
you know, work out as you had expected, but it was still fruitful and because it was a learning experience for you. And now you see a perspective that you need to go research more. Getting out of the hot seat's important. Um, some people are very aggressive. And uh, so, you know, here's some statements that people make in, uh, you know, to try to overwhelm other people. And as Jeremy just said, when we're in the hot seat, you know, some of our questions, what do you mean by that? Uh, how did you come to that conclusion? Just simply saying, you know, I really don't have enough information. Let me think about that. What that does is it really takes the pressure off. You've said, I really don't know. Now, we were going to do something. I'm not sure it's going to work with us. Um, we were going to put some of you in the hot seat. Maybe we could have a, what do you think if we got a hot seat volunteer and a hot seat aggressor? We're kind of trying to figure this out on the fly here. Anybody want to like be in the hot seat? No volunteers. You want to be in the hot seat? Oh, how cool. Okay. So this is going to be really open, open mic here. Okay, why don't you give her your seat? Why don't you come sit here? Could I impose on you? Mm. Did you? Okay, so you guys have just met. Um, and let's pick a topic. Which topic should we choose here? The first one? Yes? Yeah, you spoke up, you know. First one, don't push mor your morality on me. Okay. So you're the Christian. You're the Christian. You're in the hot seat. This guy is aggressive. And... He, you could switch places. It's still going to be the same thing. And he is feeling, you know, maybe you're talking about the subject of abortion, and um, he's feeling that, you know, you're really cramming morality down on him. And so he's going to respond to you in an uncharacteris uncharacteristically aggressive way. Don't push morality on me. How are you going to respond to him? You're in the hot seat. Don't push your morality on me. What do you mean by that? I mean, you think you're better than all of us, but w what makes you better? I never said I was better. <laughs> well, you seem to be acting that way. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not comfortable, thanks, both of you. It's not comfortable to be in the hot seat, is it? Well, that was a good one, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> we won't do that. Um, oftentimes, asking questions is a good way to deflect from being in the hot seat. Turk, you take your Bibles with you, to, with me, excuse me, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20. In Luke 20, I'll Again, as, as our volunteer just did, sometimes people can be really aggressive like that. Um, not the volunteers, what? Um, Luke 20. And notice in chapter 20, verses 2 through 8 here. We'll start in verse 1. And on one of the days, while Jesus was teaching in the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders 
confronted him. Here they are. This is Jesus is in the hot seat here. And they spoke with him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? So they're, they're coming to Jesus. They're being aggressive with him. They're putting him in the hot seat, demanding for him to tell them who he is. What's his response in verse 3? Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? He did what? He turned the tables. He asked a question. He got himself out of the hot seat, not by having to defend himself, by engaging the other person and asking a question. What Jesus says um, in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to them, I'll ask you, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And then in verse 5, they reason among themselves, if we say this, he's going to say that, if they say that, I'm going to say this, and so they don't answer him at all. And we can go down a little bit further here, notice chapter 20 as well, verse 22. Again, Jesus is in the hot seat, and Let's start in verse 21. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a coin, a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have on it? He asked them a question to again get out of the hot seat. Now, too often, Christians are pegged as intolerant. Uh, if you ever, you know, say something contrary to somebody else, they'll say, oh, you're just, you're intolerant. And let's say we're talking about a sensitive issue. Maybe it's the truth of Christianity or same-sex marriage. And what do you do when someone asks you, or somebody says to you, you're so intolerant? So, you're so intolerant. What do you mean by that? You, or, what do you mean by that? You think that you're right and everybody else is wrong. Well, I do think I'm right. I, I might be mistaken, but we're disagreeing. Don't you think that you're right? Yes, but I'm not intolerant. You are. Well, why am I intolerant, but you aren't? I think I'm right. You think you're right. Why am I intolerant, and you're not? Now, usually the person means you're trying to persuade someone else, but in reality, so are they. Holding your views and advocating for them is different than trying to force someone to believe those views. When someone calls you intolerant, that's just simply like saying you're ugly or your character is faulty. It has no point in the argument. An important question here is, what does my character or how I look have to do with the issue that we're discussing? That's important. I remember hearing a, a person talk about a conversation that they were in and somebody called them intolerant and they talked back and forth about their reasons for it and the guy says, okay, I'm intolerant. That has nothing to do with the point we're discussing. Let's get back to it. So, um, you know, we can think about these different truths. Um, you shouldn't push your morality on me. That's a statement, right? If somebody says that to you, what would you say to them? What do you mean by, why, why shouldn't I push my morality on you? Well, how would they answer that? Well, it's going to be hard for them to contradict themselves. 
either they're going to say you shouldn't push your morality on them or you're saying because if they say you can't then they're pushing their morality on you okay or if the professor says the bible's just a myth a bunch of tales and myths um you can ask the question what's our second question how did you come to that conclusion now the professor has probably assumed because of his naturalistic philosophy that miracles are impossible. And so he may say something, well, the Bible's full of myths because he already believes that what? Miracles are impossible. Now his argument is really working in a circle. Now, when people say, and you find this often, Jesus was a good man and a prophet, but I think he was mistaken in calling himself the Son of God. If Jesus was wrong and he always talked about him being the only way of salvation, that wouldn't make him a good man or a prophet. He was either right or he was a lunatic. He couldn't be a good man and a prophet and be mistaken about his own identity. Or let's go back to the illustration we had earlier about the fetus. Um, somebody may make a comment that a fetus may be a human but they're not a person. Now we could ask the question, what's the difference between a fetus and a human being? Now, usually what somebody's saying is that there's a moral difference, a morally relevant difference to um, the fetus, the embryo, the child in utero and the child outside of it. Usually they think that there's a moral difference between killing an unborn child and killing a born child, a child that's already living. And so um, there's an illustration called trotting out the toddler. If we're talking with somebody that's uh, uh, for abortion, we could just simply ask the question, well, you feel like it's okay or morally okay to, to put to death the fetus, the child in the womb. At what point does it become not okay? Partial birth? birth what's the difference in the person between outside of the womb and in the womb trying to get them to think the logic through of their positions or how about this one people twist the Bible all the time how could you respond well first we need to look at what their question is so we would ask them what do you mean by that now it is true that people do twist the Bible but what the person here is implying is that I'm twisting the Bible. So you can ask them, well, what brought you to that conclusion? They can't just throw out a comment about my character. It doesn't make that an argument. Okay. So using questions to guide conversations, that's what we've been talking about. It takes a lot of skill. It, it takes some practice. It takes... Uh, this idea, this sense of knowing where we want the conversation to go. Do we want to simply get information in the conversation? Clarifying questions. And what do you mean by that? Well, you know, how do I understand you? Are, are we trying to move the conversation in a direction where we can get their conclusions, their ideas? What's their evidence for that? Do we want to expose a weakness in their argument. Different questions can be used in very important ways to bring the conversation to a right spot. Now, let's just put it together. What about those times when people just say things and they just seem to stop us cold? 
Well, uh, sometimes people say things in which they ridicule us. But remember, ridicule is not an argument. Let's think back to the clip we had of, of Dawkins. What was he doing to the young woman? He was mocking her, right? He was ridiculing her. Oh, you're going to believe in the spaghetti monster. You're going to believe in the great juju. Ridicule is not argument. And it's very important for us as we're reversing the burden of proof to remember we're looking for their arguments. And as you read things or as you hear things, it's important to, to keep those separate. So, in using questions to guide a conversation, certain questions are helpful, like, have you ever considered this? Maybe we're talking about the Bible or abortion or something else. Have you ever considered this? Or, have you ever considered, uh, back to that idea of reincarnation we talked about earlier, some people will even make this argument, that reincarnation's been pulled out of the original text of the scriptures. Have you ever considered how difficult that would be? I mean, remember, uh, how were the first copies of the Bible made anyway? And by hand, right? So could you imagine what it would be like to expunge all references to the to reincarnation in every handwritten copy of the Bible? I mean, it's just it's an absurd point. So have you ever considered the fulfillment of prophecy in the Bible? Asking a question to, again, put a stone in someone's shoe. Now, another way to challenge someone without being offensive is asking a question, can you clarify this for me? And it's important, again, to realize that when we're asking these questions to keep the right spirit. So act, be genuinely interested in saying, well, can you clarify this for me? For example, can you help me understand if evolution is a fact of how life got started? Well, how did things just come out of nothing? How was there something? Where did that something come from? Can you explain that to me? Or can you clarify for me if homosexuality is natural, why can't they reproduce? And using these questions, you're guiding the conversation, but importantly, you're still remaining friendly. Another point, uh, important point of the game plan is looking at other alternatives, like saying, may I suggest another way at looking, this, at looking at this? Well, maybe you know, God was the thing that brought something into existence. Have you ever considered this alternative to what you're saying? And also asking them, would you give me feedback on this, what I'm presenting? Good point, asking for feedback on what we share. So remember, the key idea of our game plan so far is, is not to confuse somebody, not to manipulate somebody, but to clarify, to gain information. What is their foundation for their, their conclusions? But I also want to bring out, you know, I showed you a picture earlier of Columbo, and only one of you recognized him. Um, if I were to mention Perry Mason, would that ring a bell with anybody? Yeah, a couple of generation people again, and one young person here. <laughs> I'm going to have to get new illustrations, I could tell. Perry Mason was a lawyer, trial lawyer, back in the day on television. Uh, Columbo, he asked questions in a bumbling, friendly kind of way. Perry Mason asked questions uh, when the person was on the witness stand, really aggressive. You will use your questions differently in different situations. You're with somebody on an airplane, you're talking to somebody, you're going to use the friendly, oh, help me to understand what you're talking about. With somebody that's being a bit more aggressive, you might use more of the Perry Mason style, more of a hard-hitting questions. So we'd like to talk now about something else called intellectual suicide. What's that phrase? Intellectual suicide. What is that? Um, 
it's, it's the idea that certain arguments have seeds of destruction within themselves. Maybe, Jeremy, you could, could help us a bit with that. Well, we'd like to show how you know, questions help reveal uh, an argument when it commits suicide. And what it means is that an argument commits suicide when it contradicts itself on a fundamental manner. Like the t-shirt that says, the statement on the other side is true, and on the other side it says, the statement on the other side is false. Or, there is no absolute truth. Well, what do they mean by that? Is that statement not absolute as well? Or, don't take anyone's advice. Well, they're obviously giving advice right there. Or, nothing is certain. If nothing is certain, then that statement as well is not certain. Or, as Yogi Berra said, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Well, if it's too crowded, people are obviously still going. So illustrations of sentences that have seeds of self-destruction. But arguments at times do that as well. They commit suicide. Um, for example, there's a book that came out last year called The Grand Design. Anybody hear that book? Read, not hear the book, hear of the book. Grand Design, written by Stephen Hawking, the well-known astrophysicist. And he spends the first chapter, the first several pages in the book, describing that um, philosophy is dead and that science has all the answers. Okay? Philosophy is dead, science has all the answers. Then he spends the next 75 pages philosophizing. Serious. You read the book, he's, he's, he engages in philosophy. Well, he's just said that what? It's dead, now he moves into philosophy. Um, <laughs> I guess I cut the clip a little early. But um, he goes on and he gives an example uh, in defense of his, his viewpoint. But, but basically, what is he saying? What's his primary thought? You have no free will. Everything you think is predetermined by some neurological anterior cause. That's his argument. He believes it completely. Does that argument commit suicide? He is presenting that as a truth, that every thought you think is determined by some other cause. Yeah, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, he would say because you see there's neurological causes, but are his thoughts excluded, or would they also be determined? Well, they would have to be determined as well, right? And if everybody's thoughts are determined, then what he believes is true or whatever it is and what I believe and what you believe they're all simply determined and it completely destroys truth so his argument in and of itself commits suicide now he spends a lot of time trying to convince people that religion is wrong he's convinced that religion is wrong but he also believes that everything is determined and so how could you know truth or falsity of anything I'm thankful in the Christian worldview, we do believe that there is truth. So let's go on here. Now let's go back to the issue of the Bible just being written by men and thus not dependable. So someone says, you think the Bible, well you say to them, you think the Bible is flawed because it's written by men. And, yes. they, and you are an exception to this rule? Well, I don't understand, what do you mean? 
Well, you apparently think that your judgment about the Bible is right, but you're just a flawed human. Well, I don't mean that humans always make mistakes. Well, then you can't simply rule out the Bible because perhaps those men weren't making any mistakes. Again, and pushing arguments to their conclusions, seeing if arguments self-destruct. That's the point here. Let's take a very common one, the idea that all religions are true. Well, if that statement is true, what does that mean about Christianity? Well, if all religions are true, if that statement is true, what does it mean about Christianity? It means Christianity is true. All religions are true. Christianity is true. But Christianity is a very exclusive religion. In other words, Christianity says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? Um, and therefore implies that other religions are false. So Christianity, the statement all religions are true and Christianity is true, can't both be the same. Or what about death? You know, everybody believes the same thing about death. Well, is that true? Or all religions teach the same thing? What about reincarnation? Uh, what about what we as Seventh-day Adventists believe, that people sleep in the grave? What about the idea they go to hell? They're not all true, are they? So the argument itself has seeds of self-destruction. Uh, we've already talked about the idea of, of condemning. Sometimes people will, you know, if you talk about homosexuality or, or a different area, um, and people say, well, you know, don't condemn me. You could say to them, well, don't condemn me. And well, uh, you know, if I'm, they could begin to say, well, I'm not condemning you. Well, I feel like you're condemning me. No, I'm just telling you not to condemn somebody. Well, you're condemning me by telling me not to condemn somebody. What gives you the right? Condemn me. Now, certainly, we shouldn't go around and tear people down. That's not our point. But we need to carefully examine the slogans and the ideas that people just throw out and make them stand for truth. Let's consider the blind men and the elephant story. I don't know how many of you have heard it, but the story goes that there were five blind men and there was an elephant and they were trying to see, well not see, but feel what the elephant looked like. Now one of the blind men had a tail and so you know he grabbed the tail and he said, well the elephant's like a snake. The other one felt the side. He was like, well the elephant's like a wall. You know, the one grabbed the trunk and said, the elephant's just like a small tree. Uh, the other one grabbed you know, the, the leg and says, well, it's just like a big stump. Now, people use this uh, story and analogy that you know, we don't have all the truth. But if you think about the story, the person who's telling the story knows what the whole elephant looks like. And there is someone who knows the whole truth. So in saying, well, you don't know the whole truth, well, somebody does know the whole truth. So it's a possibility that I can see the elephant and I'm not just feeling one side of it. So the suicide tactic, looking for logical flaws in people's arguments, trades on some laws of logic, uh, you know, uh, something cannot be A and not A at the same time. This, we call that the law of non-contradiction. Some of them are very obvious, like I never, never, never repeat a word. It's an obvious fault, right? You know, there are absolutely no absolutes. Absolutely. Um, my brother is an only child. 
Yeah. Certain things. And we like Yogi Berra. So always go to other people's funerals or they won't go to yours. Again, you know, the idea there, you have to think about that one for a little bit. But again, it's got contradiction in it. So let's look at some of these statements. And maybe we could do this as a group here, get some feedback from you. Here are some statements, dogmatic statements. Do they or do they not contain seeds of self-destruction within them? What do you think? Let's look at the first one here. It's wrong for missionaries to try to change other people's religious beliefs. Is there a logical flaw in that statement? Okay, it's a belief, and it's a belief about what? It's a, it's a belief about the missionaries' religion that they're, what they're doing, they shouldn't do. In other words, I'm trying to change the their belief, the missionaries' belief, because the missionary does believe they should do that. Okay, good. Uh, what about this next one? Uh, we've kind of talked about it. Let's skip that one. Let's go to the third one here. You can only know, I like this, what has been proven by science. Yeah, see, now that's a great question. How do you know that? How could you know that? A lot of people make that argument that science is the be-all and end-all. You can only know what's been proven by science. What was Craig's interactions with Peter Atkins? Remember he gave him those five things that you can't know by science? Do you remember that? You don't. Uh, um, there was a debate, Christian philosopher and a scientist, and, and Atkins made this statement, Peter Atkins teaches at Oxford University, and says, you can only know it's proven by science. And the philosopher he was debating said, well, you can't know what beauty is by science. You can't prove science by science. You can't prove the fact that you exist, <clears throat> you know, that your mind exists by science. You can't prove mathematics by science. Those are all things that are not proved by science. It was a very interesting exchange. Peter Atkins just sat there dumbfounded as he kind of exploded this thought. And that light was always constant. And also that light is always constant in any uh, place or time. You can, can't test that every single place or time. So Again, something assumed. So these have seeds of self-destruction within them. They commit the suicide tactic. The last one, there is no truth. Obvious. What does that say? That is a truth. There is no truth. Yes? That you can prove love with science? Yeah, I, I guess you could prove that there are certain reactions that take place in a body um, and if you want to if you want to be reductionistic like Harris and Hawkins and Dawkins and are really everything we are is just chemicals and and so love is only chemical reactions in their viewpoint but I don't think you could demonstrate that love exists sure good point Okay, love is not an emotion strictly. Um, sure. Love is a temporary state of insanity. That's the definition that I read. It was so 
temporary state of insanity healable by marriage. You better be sure that you're in your mind when you're insane or you're going to end up marrying to the wrong person for those of you that are not married yet. Okay? All right. So um, let's go to taking the roof off. Next thing here. What? Oops, sorry. <laughs> Another part of the game plan is what we call taking the roof off. Uh, and this is in relation to identifying intellectual suicide. Uh, this illustration comes from Francis Schaeffer. And his point needs to be understood. Uh, so let me give you an exa example. We live in uh, a world that gravity exists. Now, if I simply decide to live like gravity doesn't exist, uh, certain things will happen to me. I'll probably break my leg or die or break an iPad. Um, because even though it exists, and I choose not to, doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. And so he points out that you know people live with having a roof on that shields them you know, from logic and the lack of logic in their thinking. Uh, for example, in Sam Harris's book says that you know, we know that things are, some things are good and bad, but why should they be good or bad if they're simply you know, a byproduct of evolution? You know, why does that render something you know, good or bad? So what Schaefer wants to do by taking the roof off, again, Schaefer says that people build a roof to protect them from the fact they live in God's world. Everybody lives in this world, and we have to, we have to live with that tension. And he tells a story, um, Schaefer does, of being in a room in South Africa, in a college there, um, meeting, excuse me, meeting a South African at Cambridge University. And they were in this room, and they were talking, and there was a Hindu there. And the Hindu gentleman was saying that there's really no difference <clears throat> between cruelty and non-cruelty. No difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. So as they were having this kind of philosophical conversation, the student in whose room it was, it's in England, so naturally they're drinking a lot of tea, and so he took this boiling pot of water, and he picked up, and he came over to the Hindu, and he stood over the Hindu's head with the pot of water, and he's raising it about to tip it over the Hindu's head. And the Hindu looked up and said, what are you doing? And the young man said, well, there's no difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. At which point, the Hindu got up and left the room. Now, the point here is that oftentimes, people live in God's word, world but try to protect themselves from the end results of really thinking about God's world. And so taking the roof off is trying to force people to see, kindly, gently, with a winsome attitude, the, the conflicted nature of their thinking. Now, Schaefer says, every man has built a roof over his head to shield himself at the point of tension. The Christian, lovingly, must remove the shelter, or the roof, and allow the truth of the external world and of what man is to beat upon him. When the roof is off, each man must stand naked and wounded before the truth of what is. He must come to know that his roof, roof is a false protection from the storm of what is. Well, how do we do this? How do we, we bring people to this conclusion? Well, there's, there's three points to it. The first is we need to find the key part of their argument. Again, there's no difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. Secondly, we want to test drive the argument and see where it leads. 
Is it harmonious? Is it free from contradictions? If we see a contradiction, then we try to point it out how the person really doesn't live in harmony with that. For example, Sam Harris, who we just saw in the clip a while ago, doesn't live as if everything is deterministic. If he did, he wouldn't write the books that he does, trying to convince people. He lives as though he can make a difference in people's thinking, even though he thinks everything is determined. So, you know, a an illustration of this. Um, there was a person that was sentenced to death in California, and Mother Teresa, many years ago, interceded. And her argument was that this man shouldn't be put to death because Jesus forgave people. Well, let's test drive that argument for a moment. Where does it take us? What? Where does it take you? She's appealing to this man. Let this man not be put to death because Jesus forgave people. Now, emotionally, that really gets you, but what? Don't put people in jail at all, right? Just forgive them. Okay, so we shouldn't place judgment in our own hands, but what about the idea, well, then why should we put them in jail? That seems to be putting a judgment as well. Now, whether the death penalty is right or not is a, is a conversation, but her argument, does it really follow through logically? I'll let you, I'm not going to the microphone man here if you wanted to that was her argument that Jesus forgave we should forgive therefore don't kill don't put person to death so your statement well, we should emulate the forgiveness what about the idea well then why are we putting them in jail in the first place Okay, well, let's pull out this conversation here. I can see where it's going to go. But it's good. Good illustrations, right? So, you know, get a lot of heart and passion in our, our answers. <clears throat> but, you know, we need to think through some of these issues. Let me shift the illustration a little bit here. Um, many individuals will argue that the same-sex attraction is natural, and therefore individuals should be totally free to engage in homosexual activities because same-sex attraction is natural. Now, later on, we're going to talk about why Christians are homophobic. Um, but just here, that argument, um, it's natural. What does that mean? Well, let's imagine that, how could we pull that out? Um, same-sex attraction is natural. They're sure I should do it. What else is natural or oftentimes people think is natural? What? Okay, heterosexual, yes. Alcoholism, thank you. Alcoholism can be affected by our genes. So we could say, well, great, does that mean alcoholics should continue? Now again, I, not talking about the issue here, I'm trying to expose the logic behind it and how certain arguments really, they, they really don't match and what we need to do lovingly, carefully, is expose people to the truth of the world they live in. Oh. Want to take that? Or you want me to do this? Okay, so here's a few um, points here that seem to be intellectually that uh, really don't match. Okay, well, we already talked about this one. Capital's punishment is wrong because Jesus would forgive. Um, what about the second one here? I'm personally against abortion, but I don't believe in forcing my views on others. 
Where's the tension in that statement? Okay, very good. I'm against murder, but I'm not going to force my view on other people. Really, we force, the laws force views on people all the time, don't they? You know, within this, if somebody says, well, you can't legislate morality, what question could we ask? What do you mean by that? We shouldn't legislate morality. I mean, aren't there laws all over the place that legislate morality? You know, not stealing, you know, not robbing, you know, all sorts of things in that nature. So again, this is a very important aspect in looking at people's arguments and trying to see their tension in their experiences. The next, you know, group of people or viewpoint is what I call the steamroller. This one is really the hardest one to break out of. If you're one of them, I am commonly a steamroller. Uh, and a steamroller is just someone who's really aggressive. And when you know you do something and you're very strong about it, you don't give the other person the time to say it. You're just you're just going full steam and just tearing them apart, not not doing anything. Now. If you're not the one who's steamrolling, but you're encountering a steamroller, how, how do we deal with that? Okay, well, steamrollers consistently interrupt. Have you ever been in a conversation like that? Where you're trying to make a point and somebody's just, are you interrupting me? Um, <laughs> they constantly interrupt, not necessarily with answers, but frequently just question after question after question. So how do we deal with this? Well, first thing, three-step process. First of all, stop the steamroller. How do you do this? Just put your hand up and gently ask for time to finish. And say, is it okay if I finish? And, you know, it's not an easy uh, topic we're discussing. You have a good question, may I finish? So the first thing is simply stop them. Usually, unless they're very aggressive, um, <laughs> Stopping them will make the point. The second uh, point is to shame them. And after you, you've stopped them, and I know you're like, oh, shame, shaming someone, that's not, not right. But you ask them, can I have to ask you a quick question uh, or a favor? You know, I see that you're, you're very passionate about what you're talking about, but can you give me, you know, a minute or two uninterrupted, you know, to finish my point? And then you can, you know, reply to my point. You stop them, you shame them, and if that doesn't work, leave them. Uh, come to a point, you know, if, if it really appears that they're not interested in the conversation, they're not giving you the opportunity, say something like, well, our conversation's really not going anywhere. I'm going to have to go, but I'll let you have the last word. And then let them have the last word, be gracious, thank them, and turn away. Remember, it's not about you, it's about Jesus Christ. And so, you know, what we've been talking here is trying to just put a stone in the shoe. And again, you know, if we're talking to people, are we gathering information? Are we trying to persuade people? Are we trying to refute people? Remember, sometimes if you're in an intense conversation, it's not necessarily the person you're engaging with, but it might be the people that are listening that are, have the benefit of it. So in these first two sessions, we've talked about ambassadors having good knowledge, being ready to answer people. Um, we've talked about certain principles, asking questions to move conversations. I'd like to suggest something to you, is that you 
begin to go beyond your comfort zone in engaging with people. And don't be swayed by outward appearances. Don't be swayed by the way somebody looks. I remember many years ago, I was delivering food to somebody and we started talking about the Bible and he gave me a kind of a offhanded negative answer and I left. The next time I saw him, he said he wanted Bible studies. I thought the whole conversation was a failure. It was a seed. It was a stone in his shoe to get him thinking. It's time for us to take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to apply some of what we said to some key issues. Uh, where was God on 9-11? Why are Christians so homophobic? Can we really trust a book written by some dead Jewish males? So we'll come back at 3 o'clock. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.